0: I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests and stay tuned for the end of each episode where we'll talk about some great ways to support native causes and or native-owned businesses. Let's get started. I am more than a maker more than an athlete more than a pastor Chata ili i am choctaw proud we are the choctaw nation and together we're more so in season two episode 18 i got together with megan baker from choctaw nation of oklahoma historic preservation department we talked through her extensive work in tracing the history of our choctaw people decade by decade and in monthly articles of the Atifa Bussa in our Choctaw paper called Biskunik. So back by popular demand. Welcome back, Megan. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's only been a year since our last recording. Only a year. It feels like so much longer. I know. doesn't it feel, I mean, like we were just talking about this before we started, you guys, and um, how a year goes by fast, but at the same time, it seems like we just recorded it the other day. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. So... Thanks again for hopping on. I know you're super busy. A lot has happened in the last year, right? Yeah. I finished the
1: series, finished writing it. You know, that was something I was doing every month. And so, um, once I finished someone else did an article and I was like, wow, a month off from writing, this is amazing. Oh,
0: That must've felt great. And I mean, the stuff that you wrote about as I was telling you earlier, it was really awesome to be able to have these complex pieces of information that are scattered out amongst, you know, textbooks, um, history books, um, but even deeper stuff, the information that Choctaw Nation provides that the general public doesn't always have access to. And then you were able to kind of put it into layman's terms so folks like myself could really understand what was going on through the decades with our people. And then also you got your PhD completed, correct?
1: Uh, no, not yet. I'm supposed okay. to do it this year. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're really so, close, though. Yeah, yeah. So this year, um, I, I started working part time. Um, so I'm not full time anymore. So now I'm supposed to be focusing on just writing my dissertation, oh, and then yes. um, after that, I will be done with it, and then oh. I start to work on it as a book.
0: <laughs> oh, that'll be cool. Yeah. So yeah, please keep us updated on what's going on with that as you're. Um, almost done with your PhD super excited for you that's one for the girls team as well Um, (laughs) well I should say the native girls team Uh, in addition you went to France recently right Uh, yeah so we've been working on an
1: exhibit um, to bring some Choctaw items and some other southeastern items uh, to the cultural center, so um, we did a visit, a delegation visit, to see the items all together in person and make sure they're all safe to travel and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we also did some like workshops with like the museum people. Um, like we taught them how to um, make Choctaw moccasins, how to play stickball. We got to play stickball in front of like oh. park in front of the Eiffel Tower, which what? was really cool. <laughs> That's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was really fun. And just, you know, going out um visiting river cane. We did that kind of last week with eveline Steele. Um and so we collected some. And then this past Friday I went over to her house to learn how to um, you know, um strip river cane so you can have it to make baskets. And so just
0: oh. fun stuff like that. <laughs> The day in the life of Megan Baker. I want to be you. <laughs> Please let <laughs> me be you. <laughs> it, it's a very Choctaw life, and I, I'm very happy with it. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And even just that playing stickball in front of the Eiffel Tower. How cool is that? So. Um, in our previous episodes together about our Choctaw history through the decades, we started in 1830 and ended around the 18, actually the early 1900s. So we'll pick up where we left off at a time when President Theodore Roosevelt made it known that he preferred that Oklahoma and Indian territories enter the Union as a single state rather than two, as had been proposed. And with this, Indian territory faced a future in which they would be enjoyed joined with Oklahoma territory. So these next few decades will cover our crucial decades. You've got statehood and life for the Choctaw after land allotments, a fight against termination, and so on. So let's start with what was going on in Choctaw history in the 1900s. Our people were facing issues with citizens' roles and their land allotments and potential Oklahoma statehood. So it was, a, you know, obviously a trying time for a lot of folks. Our Choctaw people never seemed to have even just a moment to catch a breath. There was constant fear of, of losing more and more of the land in Mississippi, and that concern came true. And then there were worries about being removed and placed in Indian Territory. This also came true. And then once in Indian Territory, they started to rebuild their homes, community, government, and now this new land was being threatened with a push from white settlers to claim the land that had now been designated to the American Indian. So in the western part of Indian Territory were unassigned lines that in 1889 were opened to white settlers. And this was a famous event known as? The Land Ride. <laughs> right? <laughs> um I guess we could give gold stars for anyone who else who answered the same, but <laughs> if we knew who they were. So what was the original intention of the lands in Western Oklahoma prior to the land run?
1: Yeah. So a lot, basically all of the land that was kind of Oklahoma was originally like um, designated to the five tribes through the treaties. So everything that was um, basically Southern Oklahoma and then just a little bit into the Texas Panhandle, that was originally allocated to Choctaws when we signed our 1830 treaty. So we should have had all of that land across um, that. But um, as the articles kind of talk about, um, slowly each of those, um, they're kind of brought into smaller and small, smaller parcels. So um, you kind of, they had to get rid of um, the part that went to Texas and then um, there was a parcel that was like the Western lands and so um, that was kind of like the, the least district is what they called it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had a section, mm-hmm. you know, half of the, that, that middle section became Chickasaw Nation when the Chickasaws um, came over and settled um, in, in Indian territory. And then of course we have, you know, chopped up small um, parcel. So it, it all gets really kind of chopped up. And so the right. other, like the Cherokees had a lot more of theirs and that gets kind of whittled down as well. And so they kind of decide to kind of allocate that. It's like, oh, maybe we'll put all the Western tribes like um, in this kind of area. And then eventually, you know, they're like, mm, we could um, we can move some white people over here. And so um, then it becomes, um, that parcel um, known as Oklahoma territory
0: I find it interesting that they sounds like they may have had the mindset maybe not all of them making these decisions but there seemed to be a mindset of oh this will be easy we'll just do it this way you know it's like oh well there are human beings involved in this whole situation but so those, those Western tribes, the plain tribes, what was supposed to happen to those tribes then if the area was going to be opened up to settlers?
1: So they get kind of moved off. I think, I don't know this one, this part as well, but I think they are kind of like allocated to much smaller parcels, Um, you know, okay, further south.
0: Gotcha. All right. So Indian territory was supposed to be de- designated to all the tribes that had moved in Many of their people suffering and dying along the way to get there. So how in the world did this land grab happen to come about? How was this even allowed when this was territory designated to the tribes? it's it's
1: you know the years of kind of different treaties going on like just in the case for Choctaw Nation like what was a very large parcel of land becomes when gets chopped up into little or in smaller pieces and I think that happens in those other parts um, of what eventually kind of becomes Oklahoma territory you have those kinds of parts they're like oh um, the Cherokees aren't using this land so we're just going to kind of make it Um, the Cherokee outlet and kind of all of those different things and that it happens in those like small kind of legal ways you know each of those tribes are going through their own kinds of issues like there are things that the U.S. government isn't upholding in the treaties and so they're kind of so desperate for you know the the things that they were already promised they're like okay fine then like another session of land and so that's kind of you know they're really pushed in these um, positions that they don't want to but you know like some people you know Peter Pitchlin was really desperate to get money that Choctaw Nation had been owed um, and so he became a lot more open to like different kinds of things that he wouldn't have otherwise because it was like here's a million a couple million dollars that's like not been paid out and that needs to be paid out and so um, they make all these concessions but then they don't even get what they're kind right. of And so um,
0: that's a really big thing that's happening in that time period. And such is the story of the Native American, my God. So for those of us who grew up in Oklahoma, the land run of April 22nd, 1889, was really a big part of our Oklahoma history education. And those lands that were supposed to be reserved for the Plains Indians and other tribes but were about to be opened up to non-native settlers. Were considered really ideal areas, and those lands were, according to OklahomaHistory.org, the Cherokee Outlet on the north bordering Kansas, the Iowa Kickapoo, Potawatomi reservations on the east, and the Cheyenne and Arapaho reservations on the west. And these two would later be opened to settlement. To the south lay the Chickasaw Nation, as you mentioned earlier. So now comes the land run, a land grab for settlers to lay claim to these lands that had been promised to the Indians. And the article goes on to say, The great dramatic moment came when, at the stroke of noon, starting signals were given at the many points of entry. In some instances, it was given by a blue-clad military officer firing his pistol, or by a trumpeter, at times by a citizen firing his rifle in the air, or, as at Fort Reno, by the boom of a cannon. All produced the same results, a tumultuous avalanche of wagons and horsemen surging forward all in one breathtaking instance. That had to have been a crazy sight to see, huh?
1: Yeah, it's, and Oklahomans love to kind of recreate this moment. It's such a moment of kind of origin, but it's such a, like, profound moment of, like, dispossession, and that's always kind of, um, you know, right. that always gets whitewashed, I think, a lot of the times, you know, they, a lot of Native groups in Oklahoma, Native, um, have been, like, we shouldn't have these land runs these are races like these celebrate really genocidal policies and um you know they're really insistent upon it and so um I don't know it's one of the great complications I feel like of isn't you it know, is- living in Oklahoma and like knowing that like this is how this place came into being
0: um but then you like still love this place <laughs> and right so, yeah know. you know
1: it's really <laughs> weird
0: <laughs> there is such a conflict in my brain you know like There's this book that I loved reading when I was younger called the um, Oklahoma land run or just land run, but I still love the book because it really does. It's written by a woman who didn't grow up in Oklahoma and yet she captures Oklahoma so well about the red dirt. And, and then, you know, all these things happen leading up to the actual run itself. It's not really a history book. It's a, it's a romance novel, (laughs) but to this, you know, back then I was like, Oh, this is so exciting. And then later in life, when I started realizing what really was going on about how sad this actually wasn't had to have been terrifying for, you know, the, the natives that were living there and that had already been moved, removed there, and then they might lose their land again. And, and who knows, it's gotta be so unsettling. So yeah, my, my brain is very much at conflict as well. (laughs) But as you know, our University of Oklahoma Sooners are named after those settlers who cheated by arriving early in their desired land area, and they hid out prior to the actual legal time of entry. So they were known as the Sooners. And I remember at one point in my life thinking about how exciting and dangerous and wild the land run must have been. But the backstory, as you were and I were talking about, of whose land they were running after was the very last inch of land and hope given to others who had had everything taken from them. And it's it's a very sad thought. They lost people on the way to these lands that they were promised. So again, at this time in history, what is now called the state of Oklahoma was then known as Indian territory. And all of these actions such as the land run were leading up to statehood. So how did that come about? How did statehood come about?
1: so the u.s have all like um i guess we could start you know 1890 it's kind of known as the closing of the indian wars right this is when Mm -hmm. the u.s army is like fighting native people um you have the battle of Wounded knee and so that's kind of a big defeat and so they're like oh all right so like we've conquered the whole continent. And so um, they start to, like, look inward, and they're like, oh, what land is kind of left, what's left to conquer? And so, you know, I think Indian territories, this is really big island in the middle of the continent in which that is, like, still belongs to Native people. And, like, they hold title, obviously, like, for the five tribes, at least, they hold the title to their lands. And so... I think there's this kind of, um, real turn to like, and focus on, um, Indian territory and kind of like, oh, how do we get this kind of area? Um, and how do we kind of incorporate that into the United States? And so, um, that area that was part of the land run, it eventually kind of comes together as Oklahoma territory. And then while you have, um, the five tribes lands that's collectively kind of seen as Indian territory even though you have like you know um in Cherokee Nation they have other tribes kind of living in their land and so it's kind of an amalgamation of all of them but it's basically um those lands of the five tribes.
0: For sure and I remember reading in your article about how After that land run that Congress had passed the Organic Act of 1890, which organizes lands into Oklahoma Territory. So first it had to become a territory and then a state and then join the USA. I never I never even thought about that. It's been so long since we've created a new state. So so in 1906, Congress passed the Five Tribes Act, and that was trying to change how tribal governments operated. Right. So so the U.S. became responsible for land offices and the entire school systems and all that, right?
1: Yes. And so, but um, kind of even before that, right? Like you start to have that process of allotment. And so that's really what kind of leads up to that 1906. So you have to have that happen, of course, before you get to kind of that point. Right. Because allotment, you know, which kind of starts back in, you you could start to say it's like in 1893 when like... um, The Congress creates the Dawes Commission, essentially, to send out um, this, these three people to kind of um, do a poll of the five tribes being like, do you guys support allotment? And they really, really tried to convince everyone that allotment (laughs) was a good idea. But like everyone just kept being like, no,
0: we do not want allotment. You're (laughs) going to love it. You're going to love it. It's going to be great.
1: (laughs) Yes. And so I think it's like about the first two times they fail, like just, it's a complete failure. And so yeah. they just keep having to go back and they are trying to like, you know, convince people that allotment's a good idea. And so this is kind of, you know, when um, the U.S., there's a lot more pressure being put on those five tribes to allot their lands. Because, you know, allotment means like um, everyone has um, private property and it's kind of individual ownership which is very different from the way that the five tribes owned it. Like they owned it, um, collectively, you know, Choctaw right. had title to the land collectively. So you can't just like sell off parcels on your own as an individual, you know, everyone had to really commit to it. And so it was really, really difficult for them to get allotments to kind of, um, happen, Um, And so, you know, I'm kind of skipping over to another part of the articles, but you know, everyone, um, the leaders like, so it's something that got, became debated in Choctaw politics. It was like a really hot topic. And you had like pro allotment um, people, um, anti allotment people. And so they're just like constantly kind of going back and forth about it. but I think what eventually kind of wins out um, is that people are like, you know, we can't stop allotment from happening. Look how it's happened across the United States. You know, they're 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 really like taking a step back and looking at the landscape, like how have tribes like handled allotment? How's it kind of like worked out for them? Because you know the other all the other tribes did had allotment back in 1887, and so they're the five tribes are among the few who haven't had their lands allotted. So. they 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 kind of like, they're just reading the room, you know, they can see what's kind of going on. Yes. So the dominant kind of um, um, idea is like, you know, I don't think we can, we can do that much about it. So we should do this on our own terms. You know, we should like, just say yes to allotment, but then we get to decide exactly kind of how it's done. And so that actually ends up being what happens for at least Choctaw Nation, like they're able to negotiate certain kinds of terms um, that are a little bit more advantageous than I think um, maybe some of the other five tribes. Um, And so that's a really kind of significant thing um, that's happening in that allotment period. And so that's under Green McCurtain, he's kind of I know there are so many names on Facebook where people are like Green McCartan is the biggest traitor to all <laughs> people. Uh, and, um, and, and I, and I understand that sentiment because like, I think everyone wants to be gung ho anti US government. But I think if you were in their shoes, and you saw the way that exactly, like you can understand a little bit better. And I, maybe that's just something that I would like people to know it's like it's not an easy decision, you know, <laughs> look at everything that's going on around you, like right you had it's like they've said it's the end of the Indian wars like they're out there killing native people, and so mm-hmm. um you know it's it's a response to kind of all of that, and it's like how do you make sure people live you know another generation and so like that they're not all killed right. like they've happened with other native people, and so You know, there's so much complexity to it. And so I think um, I've always wanted people to be able to maybe understand that a little bit better before, you know,
0: before judging.
1: Yeah. What would you do? You know, Yeah, like if you had all these kinds of resources, you know, like we had people in Congress, we had very educated people and they were doing what they thought was best in those kinds of circumstances.
0: Absolutely. And it's something that I kind of get on a soapbox about too. I'm so glad you said that, because, again, who knows what the right answer or the right thing would be to do for in any of those situations, but all they could see was that, okay, we can either be wiped out forever, or, you know, we can try to fight back we can have a or we can have a business mind and basically go, how much can we possibly get out of this and take advantage of the situation to our benefit? Because it's probably our only option in the whole scheme of things. If we want to keep everyone safe and continue um, to build our tribe and to build our people and to continue having more babies and that kind of thing, instead of just allowing the tribe to die out um, at the hands of the non-natives. So I am completely with you on them. On this topic for sure on many topics but for sure on this one too because
1: yeah and i think the other
0: part of it is
1: like you know not everyone obviously agreed and not everyone's gonna do the same thing of course like there are some people who are like i'm not even gonna bother with this like i'm just gonna keep living over here by myself what we've always um, done and like i think like you need that kind of range of people right like yeah sure you have to have people who can negotiate with the u.s government in this kind of way but then you also need people who are Mm going to keep traditional life um alive and you know like keep that going at home and so um
0: Takes all kinds. I love that We're not all enemies
1: with one another. You know, like I think the real enemy is kind of um these governments trying to undermine us, and so we should be working together against that. You know, like Girl, I think there's a role it. for everyone.
0: <laughs> that is so well said. I think it needs to go on our next Christmas card or something. You know, <laughs> it takes all kinds. It's okay to have different, varying opinions as long as you're respecting people and um trying to, trying to see that other side of the story because. I would not want to be a chief during that time. No way.
1: Yeah, no, I don't
0: even want to be chief now. It's like
1: it's so many things that go into like decision making. So many things to kind of balance, and it's
0: like I, oh. I have an awful job. God so bless terrible. Chief Batten. No way would I want his job. Yeah, I wouldn't want his job. It's like oh, no way.
1: Like, you just I keep like doing your thing. What's I know, there? I just like reading my
0: archival material and just right. my, writing my little
1: article, you know. There you go. And I'll I... just
0: keep interviewing you about the stuff you're doing and <laughs> we'll just do our thing. Yeah. Um, no, totally though. And, and you know, we talked about the five tribes. So for those who are still trying to catch up on what all that means, um, that's the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, Seminole, and Creek, now called Muscogee. And the these tribes had really been Busy during this time building these things, the tribal government, the school systems, and all that since they arrived. Um, and I was, I remember reading in the articles about um, there was something about a change coming from Section 5 of the Five Tribes Act. If any of the five tribes chiefs refused or neglected to do his duty, he may be removed, and the U.S. president would fill the vacancy. And that aspect of legislation, which is something I didn't know before, that's still in effect today, right?
1: Uh, No, I think they kind of repealed that particular section. Um, Okay. Yeah, they def- they definitely took that out once you know, once people learn kind of what was going on I and mean, you know, and you have the AIM movement, everyone gets really fired up and so ah, they definitely okay.
0: took that out. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. We don't we don't want that in there. Um <laughs> just take that out. Um and then uh, March 4th, 1907 was also set as the closing date for the Dawes rolls by the Five Tribes Act. And so as a reminder, the Dawes rolls were the requirement for the Five Tribes to enroll in for multiple. Reasons. One of those reasons being so that they could receive their land allotments. So, tell us more about the issues that arose with those land allotments.
1: Yeah. So, um, going back to that Dawes Commission that I kind of mentioned earlier. Their kind of job at first was to like convince all the five tribes that they should do allotment. And so eventually, um, all of the tribes, including Choctaw Nation, they're like, okay, fine, like we'll do allotment. And so um, once that kind of gets passed through um, the Dawes Commission, their job then becomes to do roles of people. Okay. So- they're like, yeah. okay, we're going to make um, a list of people. So who gets an allotment? Because the idea was every single person will get an allotment and they would like be able to farm it and turn it into their home, kind of all of that. Um, and so they, at first they were like, oh, we'll just like make a list of all the people and have them kind of... Um, do that but you know it just became this logistical nightmare for them they like had these wagons and they had like a stenographer, and they had all these typists trying to help them like collect <laughs> these rolls of oh my like gosh. people to you know make sure they had all of them um at first they were like oh the rolls that the Choctaws made um throughout all this time they're not good enough but then once they kind of saw how it difficult it really was to like have a role of every single citizen uh they're like okay well we can use those lists and then do our own lists and kind of like verify if people are Choctaw and so one of the things they would do is like they would have like kind of interviews where people would just every they'd be like okay we're gonna be an Atoka on this day so everyone come and so people would like come and camp out so they can kind of do their Dawes um, interview basically, and so they would like meet with the commit like um, the committee, and they would like ask questions like, "Who is your mother?" All right. this kind of stuff, a lot of the stuff that you um, see on the Dawes rolls um, when you look for your ancestor, um, that information, and so. Um, some people like had, um, other people kind of corroborate who they were, um, to be like, oh, they actually are Choctaw. They're not just like a random white person who walked off the street, which was actually, which
0: happened <laughs> happened
1: a lot. There were a lot of white people trying, um, to get onto the Dawes rolls um, cause they wanted a land allotments cause they just heard free land. And so they're like, oh, okay, little we'll boogers. Sign, up. sign up. And so, um, you know, you had people who would, um, like, they'd be like, oh, I was married to a, my second husband was Choctaw, but then I've remarried, and I've married this white guy, and we have our four kids, and so we should all be put on the Choctaw rolls, and so um, this was something, you know, Choctaw Nation had attorneys, and so, like, they were tribal attorneys, basically, and so his job was, like, no according to our law it's like if you remarry you're not no longer kind of considered right a citizen, right like you've left that because you no longer um are a part of that and so he would like have to take those people to court because of course those people when they would get denied they'd go to the u.s government being like oh they falsely denied my application sure. and so then he would have to be like all right this
0: is what the law is this is kind of what happens and so um i mean that had to have been as you mentioned some chaos but also just that that cleaning things up constantly had to have been such a pain i mean we're talking about thousands of people so um yeah very interesting and so so sizes of the the land allotments were determined by quality and value of land correct
1: yeah so uh, i think a lot of people are like they really stick to the number 320 and so 320 i guess is like it's um your land allotment is the average cost of um that like the quality like what the land is valued at so like if you had a really rich piece of farmland then like you're not going to get 320 acres of it because it it costs like the value of it is way more than like something that's a bunch of rocks Um, yeah right (laughs) Is a rocky land. My <laughs> gosh, to, like a much smaller um, size, and so they were really trying to um, kind of calculate kind of that, and so they had, you know, geographers who had surveyed the land to figure out like what what's valuable on it, what's not, and like kind of all of that. So like there was so much kind of <laughs> at work with that. This Dawes Commission was like really hustling, and so. And it was doing it for five tribes, you know, like they had a lot to kind of right. um, um, calculate. And then, you know, of course there was like the Choctaws who live in Mississippi, like they had to, um, most people, the other five tribes, they didn't really leave people kind of, they didn't have the option um, to leave people behind as Choctaws did. And so the Mississippi Choctaws are kind of a very, um, of exceptional in that kind of way you know like they had the opportunity to come over and get allotments and kind of prove um that are Choctaw they also like sent people to Mississippi to do rolls of them um so that 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 added another layer of complication
0: good god uh,
1: the DOS rolls and so I think that's probably like why if you're like why is it say Mississippi Choctaw for my ancestors um that's kind of why it's because it's Um, related to that history of like your ancestors still were in Mississippi and they probably kind of came over um, later on and then they
0: got enrolled that way but you know they're very kind of really their own distinct group. Yeah and and for folks that that haven't learned a ton about this yet um, you know over time you'll find that yes there was a removal and there was the so-called trail of tears and all that where a lot of people came from mississippi as did some of the other tribes as well but we're just talking Choctaw right now so they came over uh to indian territory but at the same time there were some that stayed behind and so there were later removals as well and so yeah that convoluted it wasn't nothing about this was cut and dry you know i was reading in your article that that parcels averaged um The average value, as you mentioned, was 320 acres. So after getting the value of all Choctaw Chickasaw lands and dividing it by the number of citizens, as you just said, this was the equal value of the land. And then some individuals would even get as many as 500 acres of rocky and unfarmable land, while another person might get only 80 acres, but it was really good farmland. And then you've got the poor people who are already living somewhere in Indian Territory, but their land allotments might be completely different from where they had been living I, I'm just wondering, like, what did they do if they already had a farm and chickens and a house built? Did they just walk away from that and then go to their land allotments? Or how, how did that work? Yeah, like, I
1: think it really kind of depends on the person, you know, you get, so the other part is like, you got surplus and homestead. Yeah, land. what does that mean? Explain. Yeah, that to so, me. <laughs> um, so the land is, you know, they got, um, it was like 160 um acres of like, or valuation um, of like um, what you're supposed to live on. Um, okay. Your family, you're like, this is where you're supposed to build a home and your farm and do all of the land improvements, and then you had a surplus that you could sell if you wanted, or you could lease it out, or you could you make it I don't know have another home there or something, right? right. You a little bit more free to kind of do with that. Um, but um, I think a part of it was. Eventually, later on, they were like, a homestead will not be taxed, whereas a surplus can be taxed. This becomes of course. a big okay. kind of um, player, much like in later in the 1900s. Wow, um, that's kind of something that they settle on. But you know, these categories are really kind of important for those kinds of um, taxation and distinctions of like that and of, of title, and so. Um, that's kind of, that eventually later on plays
0: out, um, in a really big way. So fun. (laughs) We're going to rip your lands from you, give you new lands, and then we're going to eventually tax you on the lands that really were supposed to be a gift to you. But okay. Um, you know, it really, when I was, when you were talking, it really made me understand why my family's land allotments were both in the Arbuckle mountains, which is South And then also further north in Wayne, Oklahoma. So it's like, what did they do? Did they just never go to the Arbuckle Mountains? Because it probably wasn't super farmable. But they definitely made, and to this day, our farmlands are still, in cattle ranch and stuff like that is still in Wayne, Oklahoma. They sold off the Arbuckle Mountains part probably in the 70s or 80s, 1980s, and so that that makes so much more sense now. Hopefully that's a light bulb moment for other guests who are listening. Why why were my family's land allotments? Maybe it was surplus and homestead, you know? So um, land allotments were held in a restricted legal status. So just like American Indians had been treated as though they were ignorant in the past, this ring to here. So explain that restricted status for us.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people are maybe a little more familiar with like trust land and um, non-trust land because that's how a lot of reservations are understood. But mm-hmm. the five tribes are really kind of different, right? Like they're not not—they're um, not called reservations and they're not quite treated in the same way as other reservations in the United States, right? And this mm-hmm. goes back to the fact that, you know, Choctaws own the land. They held the title to their land. Whereas other reservations, they're not holding title. And so this is a really um, um, very important distinction. And so that's kind of like why it is a little bit more complicated in Indian territory and yes. why people like, don't think it's not a reserve, or people won't, won't call it a reservation, um, but it's just, you know, this little subset that's a little bit more complicated um, <laughs> to kind of figure out. And so, um, so the land restrictions basically kind of meant um, they it kind of like is a trust, um, so people couldn't kind of sell the land, um, they couldn't lease it without permission of like a the BIA giving you kind of permission to do anything. Right? So kind of Fantastic. the logic of this was that you know Native people, especially full bloods, they didn't know how to manage land. They didn't. Uh, know what to do. They don't know how to be property owners. And so kind of when they were coming up um, with how to do the allotments and how to manage them, that was their their kind of like logic. Is like, okay, so like these native, these full bloods, they don't, they don't know how to manage land. So we're going to put it under restrictions. So that means like if they want to do anything with it, um, you're going to have to ask the BIA you have to get permission and, um, all of that. And so this, like, annoyed everyone a lot. So annoying. Know, <laughs> <laughs> so annoying. So Um, people who were, you know, who might be like, um have be full blood but know how to like manage land like our cattle ranchers and are fully capable of managing their own enterprises and businesses and had been doing it for years for years yeah for years um when it was still um Indian territory they had to like be go to the BIA and be like (laughs) ask permission to do things that they already knew how to do and so they were like this is like getting in the way of my business and so um they wanted to get rid of the land restrictions um but then see you know people would also you'd have people who would write letters being like I don't know what's going on so like can you like not can you keep the restrictions because like I really don't want to pay taxes on this um ah, that was also like a big kind of thing um after statehood um the state of Oklahoma kind of realizes it doesn't really have any money and it has no way to make money because half of the state belongs to a lot of Native people because they're allotments and so um, they're all held in restriction. And so that means they can't tax them. And so you have so I remember going through all these kind of congressional testimonies where they were just complaining and just talking about how how all the Native people were like using public schools and all the roads and they shouldn't be allowed to because they weren't paying taxes. And so they like came up with this like crazy figure of like, oh, like the U.S. government should pay us $10 million because all of these Native people aren't paying taxes. And so. Yeah, yeah. And so that becomes actually like why you have the blood quantum requirement kind of um be introduced to the land restrictions. Um and this kind of like, you know, at first it's only supposed to be for 20 years, but then 20 years go by and people are like, no, we still want the land restrictions and um wow. but then it's so kind of complicated and so they're just really kind of trying to negotiate a way so that they get tax money on the land. um, You know, that was always supposed to be Choctaw land, you
0: know? And so
1: (laughs) that's kind of, um, I hopefully helpful to understand about restriction.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's something I didn't even realize was a thing. Um, Something that I do think a lot of folks would know is a thing is when it came to orphan children and then individuals with disabilities, they were a lot of times offered a guardian for their land or told they had to have a guardian for their land allotments. Um, so, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but why don't you share a little bit about what would go on with that guardian scenario? yeah
1: so their guardians you know you, you had to have a legal guardian guardian to kind of manage your land and any kind of leases or anything like that and so there were a lot of like white men who came around and like made careers off of managing the um inheritances and land trusts of native people and so they would um lease out the land um, and then get money from that and so they would pocket the money for being like oh I managed your land for you and so um, I get this kind of thing and meanwhile these like kids are living in poverty and like Uh. all these kinds of things and so like that's something that happened to like families across Indian territory. Um, Angie Dubow really writes about this really well in her book um, and the rivers still run and like like, she got in trouble because she was, like, exposing all of these, like, like Oklahoma politicians and important businessmen being like, look, this is what you guys are doing with all these Native people's lands. Like, you're right. siphoning money off of them. And, you know, like, she almost couldn't publish her book. Um, Go, Angie. Go, Angie. Go, <laughs> Angie. And so, like, she, like, I think that book is really good. I don't, I'm not the biggest fan of her first one, which is about Choctaws, but I think the second one is really illuminating of, like, the kind of corruption that happened throughout this, like, um, 19 early 1900s period when which people were just, like, getting rich off stealing
0: Indian land. So... Right. And it's the same thing that happened to my own family. You know, my great grandmother, her half sister and many of her aunts and uncles were turned over to a white guardian who had um, there's a there's a proper way to say this. But basically they were he paid three to five thousand dollars for each one of them and they were his servants. So um, and then he got to take advantage of their land allotments. And eventually they went to court and got a lot of that land back. So I and I'm just one of. My family is just one of many, many others. I mean, we all know the stories of um, Killers of the Flower Moon these days. If you don't go look it up, there's uh, a book and then there's a movie coming out. And that's um, it's a it's a different scenario as far as um, it has to do with oil and gas, where with my family just had to do with the land and farming the land. But Oklahoma inevitably became a state on November 16th, 1907. The word Oklahoma comes from Choctaw words "okla" and "huma," meaning "red people." And so, a lot of people, a lot happened for our people at that turn of the century. So, let's talk about 1910 through 1920. Did things get any easier for our Choctaw people during this time? If only (laughs) that would be so nice for all of us. Oh. Um, I think
1: this is this is a time period in which a lot of um you know, this is when Choctaw government is kind of um gets downsized a lot, right? They still have a lot of like offices, right? So one of the things with the lot meant, like the Choctaws were supposed to like settle their affairs and so and then they would be kind of disestablished as a government. Yeah. Uh, but that never actually really happens. And like, it kind of Surprise. like a lot of trouble with um, winding up the affairs. And so what they were supposed to do is like sell off all of the land that didn't get allotted. Mm. So what they did allotment, they saved a lot of like the timberland, the coal land, um, anything with like a lot of natural resources. Cause you know, you couldn't just like give those to people because then like knowing that there was stuff because it's like- right. You could do a lease and like you can make money off of that, and it's kind of, or you could sell it off at a much higher price. And so, they sure preserved sure. all of those lands. And so, one of the responsibilities of the chief and the attorneys that he was allowed to kind of keep on um, was to sell all of these lands. Mm. And so, that proves to be really, really difficult. Um, as you remember, with um, a few, I think it's in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s there's a lot about coal mining coal mining is such a big industry in Mm. Choctaw nation. And there's a lot of coal mines that, you know, have to get sold. And so um, one of the things is like, you had to um, sell it at a certain kind of threshold, like had to meet a minimum, like you would have to kind of bid it out. So you were like, okay, we have this parcel for land. It's up for anyone to bid to purchase. And so um, they were closed bids. And so by the time they got it they were never enough you mm. know they were not getting what the land was actually valued for and um when they were doing the surveys of the lands um they were like you know these lands are worth a lot but we can't price it that good because nobody will buy it so they mm. were already underpriced um once they put them out for bids and those bids were never kind of high enough and so that <laughs> was really frustrating and so they went through multiple rounds of that of trying to figure out like to get all of this land sold um and then starting in the you know 1910s 1920s and 1930s you see a decline in the usage of coal you know Mm -hmm. you have that energy transition where you move to oil you know oil becomes a much more important kind of commodity and a much more valuable one and so you know, to like other people, people aren't as interested in getting into coal mining when, you know, oil is much easier to kind of, um, right, of an industry to kind of get into, because, you know, it's not as laborious to remove. And so um, that also contributes to like the devaluation of the coal lands and why they can't get enough money for it. So like, there's all of these things going on in the world. Oh, my that gosh, right. Making it really hard
0: for them to kind of sell the land and well, so um yeah <laughs> no no good i i didn't mean to interrupt you i was just thinking about what what a mess it had all become i mean they're trying to diminish the government the choctaw government they've got it down at this point to um chief national attorney mining trustee and a council of choctaw leaders and then they've got all this stuff going on with the sale of the segregated coal lands um but that can that ties into the per capita payments too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain per capita to us?
1: Yeah, so you know, I'm sure you hear about people with casino tribes like they get their per cap checks. Yeah, they get the per cap. Yep.
0: because we <laughs> don't get them. <laughs> we don't get it. But get
1: money. <laughs> we know what we
0: have a lot of. <laughs> uh, you know, Comanche friends that do.
1: <laughs> but you know what? There's a lot more Chottas than there are of a lot of the per capita um, tribes. That's true. There's Um, But so basically, the per capita payments were like, you know, payments left over from the US government. So like, the US government was owed this much money. And so then that gets divided out among Choctaw people, like they did that
0: throughout the um, 1900s. Another Um, thing I had no idea was part of our history. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that to light.
1: In the 1800s, yeah. So they would get those kinds of um, checks, and so like as they started selling off parcels of land, you know, it goes into the national coffers, and then the, then it kind of goes out to everyone. Um, mm. But another the problem is, you know, because these processes are taking so long, people are dying, people are being born, you have new heirs, and so like all of the people who are supposed to get checks, um, you know, some of them have passed away. And so they have like all these uncashed checks and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. like, what do we do it? And then you have to figure yeah. out. years, And so it also becomes very difficult for the BIA because they're also supposed to be helping out with this. And so they're like, it costs more money to like do the admin for administering checks than it does. Um, you know, to how much people get, you know, he like people are getting $20 checks, but it costs us hundreds of dollars trying to track down all these people to make sure like that they're getting those payments that they're supposed to be having. And so like that adds to the kinds of chaos. Um, And so, and then you eventually you have like the office gets like reorganized. And so then they have less people to do all of this kind of work. And like, there's a lot of like um, administrative stuff in the BIA that, you know, they have their own kinds of dramas and that, right. but that you know, affects what happens to Choctaws because it's like, it affects what they're able to kind of do, what's accomplishable and what's not. And so um, that, that's kind of the complications with the per capita payments. So, and they're, they're supposed to get like, you know, these are like the last ones, like there's no more money
0: after the sale of these kinds of lands um, uh, So that's, well, yeah. Well and, and you mentioned that it was difficult to get those payments out to the Choctaw. So the Choctaw started becoming restless about it, right? Oh yeah. They're
1: like, Where are my checks? <laughs> All these right? letters.
0: Very funny. They're like, Where's my check? <laughs> like
1: I know I'm owed this and it's Understandably, I- right? Yeah, and so I think um you know I did a lot of archival research in the 20th century, and so just reading these letters that people would write to the BIA or like Congress or like the chief, they're just like angry. Oh really? Oh boy. Yeah, they've a lot of attitude, you know. <laughs> um, and so it's always like fun yeah, to, like, you know they get told off like rightfully being like we were promised all this stuff and like what's going on? Like what are
0: you doing over there? You know, just being yelled at, and
1: I, oh, I, yeah. I, I a lot of joy out of
0: reading both. <laughs> I bet that was really interesting because again, people are, you know, trying to rely on this as part of their, their living. I mean, so to not get your per cap payment would just be a terrible thing for them. I mean, God, there's so much unrest, so much, so much chaos, as you mentioned, I think that's a good word for it. And, and in fact, that restlessness eventually leads for them to start calling for the Choctaw government to be abolished which is a scary thought too on the other hand so we'll talk about more about that later but tell us about the role of chief at this time
1: yeah so chief's job was basically to make sure that everything got sold you know he he kind of was like really overseeing what uh, whatever was going on um I think by this time it is who is it um I can't remember not green occurring. But the, you um, have all these um, chiefs who then, um, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, it said that the chiefs would be, be appointed by uh, the U.S. government right, and, or by the president. But um, and I think a lot of people really pick this up and they, you know, we didn't even get to appoint our chiefs. But um, when you actually look at the records of how things were done and managed, Choctaw people were deciding who the chief was going to be like. Um, you know, the local BIA officer knew what was, like, going on. He's like, oh, these people feel a certain way about this person. Like, they knew that they couldn't just pick anyone willy-nilly. Like, they really had to be, like, attuned to, like, what was happening on the ground with community members and what their issues were and what they were concerned about. And so, like, they did hold their own kinds of, like, elections, right? Like, I don't think they're, like, the elections that we – um, think of now but they're like much more like grassroots and community oriented but people are like, gathering being like okay we want this person to be chief and so then they're like okay we picked this person so you tell the secretary of interior and the secretary of interior will kind of up- make them the chief because by then ah. the you know the U.S. president he's like I-, I don't know what's going on man I I appoint the secretary of the interior to like pick whoever because right. like <laughs> he's like I, I don't have like the time to learn about what Choctaw politics is on at that time right so, right um like this is what it says on paper but what actually happens is so different and so I think that's also what I'm really trying to show it's like what actually happened um on the ground is very different than like these things that we read kind of just as like yeah laws. Right. and so it's like a lot of Choctaws had a lot of agency and were able to decide on their leaders. And sometimes they weren't
0: happy with what their leaders did, but then they would like, you know, pick someone else. Right. (laughs) Well, and I thought that was interesting too, because a lot of people thought that the president was appointing the chief. But like you said, he delegated that job to the secretary of the interior. But really the secretary of interior was trusting that the Choctaw people would appoint whoever they wanted. And again, like you said, it probably was kind of like, we don't really have time to think about this so pick whoever you want but (laughs) but it, it seems like that's significant though because the Choctaw still had power and control over their affairs despite the interpretation of the law that stated the U.S. president appointed the chief so that's that's one small thing they did have some control over which is kind of rare. So um, so we're moving forward now into the 1920s. And this decade came with some heavy duty land allotment issues. So let's dive in. After the end of World War One, Choctaws, like the rest of the country, were dealing with the effect on the economy, coupled with the results of federal budget cuts and their own governmental power reduction. So explain to us about the coal and asphalt lands and they're still trying to get those per capita payments to Choctaws. What's what has now happened in this decade?
1: Yeah. So they're still trying to figure that out. They're still trying to sell all of those lands. You know, it's just, I think it was about I don't remember it. I think it's about six million acres, maybe. It was wow. a lot. I don't know. Wow. But it was a lot, not that many. It's, like, <laughs> it's a good chunk of land and it's worth a lot of money. And I think increasingly coal becomes like less viable. And so they were like talk to us, or like can the US government just buy this from us instead of like trying to sell it to a private um Private person, like it's just, it's so much hassle. And so, but you know, for the US government to like buy this like giant parcel of land, it kind of has to go through Congress. Like they have to approve it and it has to go through all of the congressional avenues. And that is its own, you know, Congress is its own kind of mess, you know, there's lots of wheeling and dealing. No way. (laughs) And so then that becomes kind of the new kind of focus is like, are they like, okay, like, if the US government buys it, like, how are we going to make it happen? Like, where's the money going to come from? Right. Kind of all of that. And so that really has to get figured out um, in this time period. And so... That's really um, what they're trying to do. And they're, you know, valuing the land and kind of figuring out what, what to do with it but you know and as we mentioned before people were complaining be like where are these checks where where's people the money show checks. me the money yeah um, totally that they always are like holding over people's heads being like you know we just got to sell these coal lands and then you'll have your check and it'll be a big fat one because it's a lot of land um oh my god so, <laughs> oh. people are just really antsy to get this particular um check and so as you had mentioned earlier this is like the people's growing frustration with this causes them to be like you know what why do we even have a Choctaw government we right. should get rid of them because clearly they're not doing their jobs because they have oh. not the land yet and it has been 20 30 years now and like that they said they were gonna do this they haven't and um wow it I feel like you really it you when you go in the records and you read all of the kind of correspondence you see the kind of like background drama that most people will never ever know about Um, right right exactly and so like you can see like in the letters that chief writes and the letters between like these BIA officials like they're really trying their hardest to like get things done but something falls through and Mm. just chaos in the office (laughs) happens really and so um but you know most People won't understand that. And so they just kind of just assume no one's doing their job. But I think you really see in the correspondence that people are working really, really hard. To get yes. It, but it just it's not happening in
0: as fast as people want. And on top of that, they're native. So anything they want is going to even take longer <laughs> because just because they're not top priority. Um, So that that's crazy. Did they ever get their per cap payments? So uh, eventually, you know, all the, the Coal lands,
1: um, it takes another, um, you know, Carl Albert becomes a really important kind of player in this time period. This is starting Mm. to get into the forties. But he becomes a really powerful kind of advocate for chop because, you know, Carl Albert was the representative for district three. And so back then district three um, you could say is like the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nations. Like that was entirely kind of his congressional district. And so okay. he was actually, he had like a very different relationship with Native people that I think is pretty rare because he really cared what ha- about Choctaws. he wanted to know what was going on he wanted to know about you know issues that they were having and so he really listened to whatever they wanted and like really tried to be an advocate for them totally. to get whatever they thought was really helpful and so um, it's in 1949 that they finally kind of
0: passed. Oh my gosh, really?
1: <laughs> to sell the coal lands. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's oh. when
0: they start, they're kind of able to get that check. That's really sad because a lot of people by that point have passed on and that's, that's sad. But, yeah. and then on top of that, there were issues around the land allotments, which is baffling to me because the removal was in the early 1800s And yet here we are in the 1920s and 30s, and there were still issues with the land allotments. Can you please help me understand this?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the land allotments, you know, um, because it had been, they were allotted out, they were no longer kind of um, the purview of tribal government. So the chief really had no power over like whatever happened um, to some individual Choctaws, like you know if like someone had stolen their stopped paying their lease and they're like oh we're taking over your lands and they tried to do something they really couldn't do anything right about it and so like the most kind of recourse that they would have is like writing a letter to Carl Albert or some other person in Congress or (laughs) writing a letter to the president being like hey I'm having this kind of issue um you know, the BIA has so many (laughs) issues to deal with. And, um, in this time period, I think Oklahoma is like the most populous native population. And so everyone's still living here, living on allotments, having all these kinds of issues. And they like, they're all going through the BIA, but they don't have enough people to like handle this. Cause you know, um, you know, they would send they had a probate attorney who would like go to the different courts trying to figure help people out being like, oh, okay, this is the problem. This is how you kind of fix it. And all this stuff. <laughs> there's just like, yeah, people, there's not enough resources um, to really kind of help people with their like, land issues. And so mm. That's kind of really um, the problem. And so, you know, then you have state legislators who are like, hey, like, why is there all these kinds of problems? Hey, we need to tax more land. And so they're the right. ones to fiddle more with like the land restrictions and introducing, um, like, you know, as I'd mentioned before, the blood quantum kind of requirement being like, okay, you can have it instead of for the next 10 years. 20 years or like you know cutting down the kind of timetables for that because they they still really wanted everyone to be off land restrictions but then by this time people were like you know we really these land restrictions are helpful right like it's nice that we don't have tax on our land like that's actually very useful for me as a person (laughs) (laughs) yes then they start to kind of fight against it right I think the logic I think from the present you would think people wouldn't think what people would think blood quantum is a thing is a bad thing you don't want to have that kind of thing but back then people were like yep this is helpful for me so like we should keep it and so saving them back then I mean yeah yeah
0: circumstances
1: Yeah, so you you really have to kind of know everything that's going on to kind of understand people's logic in this time period.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I I think that's such a good point. You know, we see, we're on the native forums all the time, I'm sure both you and I, and and you see a lot about being angry about the blood quantum. And I get it, like there's two sides to that story that I completely understand. Um, But again, understanding what's happening in history at this time and what's going on with the government, this was what they needed to be able to, hang on to everything. So, and, and as you mentioned, Oklahoma politicians sought to have the restrictions removed so that they could tax the land and undermine the Choctaw land ownership. And so did the politicians succeed in, in lifting the land restrictions and starting to tax the Choctaw?
1: Yes. So that was kind Mm -hmm. of the big things. It's like when they could implement that 50% blood quantum, they're like, that immediately like lifted up kind of a lot once they kind of get it passed. And so I think it's the 49 Stigler act that is kind of what was in place for up until like 2019, 2018. Hmm. Um, where it had that kind of like quantum requirement, but that was kind of like the final form that it had, but it like went through six different kinds of iterations that we don't have to go into. Um, <laughs> I do do that in my dissertation. Oh, but it would be, it would be so bad. interesting though. <laughs> um, it's really boring. I was like, gosh, look at this table. This is so boring. It's like, so like these, this one little part of the law and then this section is right. like-, uh, but like <laughs> Kill me now. Really <laughs>
0: That's kind of what you do. Um, but as I yeah. mentioned, better you than me. You just <laughs> you just bring us all the stuff that the lay person like myself would like to hear and we'll be fine. <laughs> no, thank you though for doing all this research. I know it's cost you hundreds and hundreds of hours. I mean, I hope our listeners understand that this is not stuff that you can just go out and easily find that Megan has been digging and digging and finding all the stuff to bring to us and and in the bisconic so that we can all understand it better. Um Uh, I know that in 1926, you mentioned a report called the Problem of Indian Administration, later known as the Miriam Report, was commissioned by the Secretary of Interior, and it was on the conditions of Native Americans throughout the United States. So tell us about that report. Yes.
1: So that report was very much kind of... um trying to get a sense of like what's going on with native people and it was really finding the problem of allotment they're like oh maybe this allotment thing was like maybe not as such a great idea to kind of implement widespread it's like had a lot of these unintended consequences but you know people could have told them that before but they were obviously going to listen because they were so gung-ho about allotment mm-hmm. um but I think it's like now people are thinking about welfare and being like, well, there's all these people who aren't working and they have all these different kinds of issues, and so why is it that native people are like in these kind of poverty situations? And so, mm-hmm. um, so that report was kind of really trying to get at the root of the problem, and it the you know their answer was like oh, it's actually allotment, this thing, and so <laughs> you also have a um. BIA administration that is you know trying to be mindful of like oh what is how do we uplift these Native people and help them out and so it's not yeah. true a lot of it and so that kind of um gets them you know changing how they're um governing people and so they're starting to think about oh um maybe like uh self-governance <laughs> would be very helpful because they're also you know like administratively it's a lot of work you know this yeah is what, you know I, what i was saying about the allotments right like they were sending lawyers to do be in courtrooms every day of the week um, wow in a different kind of community and just to like take care of the issues at hand. And so I think this is a time when they're really trying to like get rid of all of that work and be like, you know what? Tribal governments can handle this issue and then we don't have to kind of do it. And they called it, you know, like empowerment. Uh, I love that <laughs> yeah, spin. Really- it's empowerment. Um, passing off the problems they should have solved, um, right. really, and so, um, oh, what a mess. yes, and so that's why you kind of have that Miriam report, and so um, this is kind of that, you start to see that move into, like, um, the Indian Reorganization Act, and um, later the Oklahoma Welfare Act in
0: the 1830s, or is it 18 or 1930s? Uh, oh, sorry. 1930s. Yeah, That's okay. The only reason I wanted to clarify is because in my own brain, I would, I, I know that I would probably confuse that and say it wrong to somebody else too. No, it's totally fine. Um, <laughs> so um, 1929 was the onset of the depression. And as we head into this new decade of the 1930s, It was now President Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration, and he pushed uh, for policies like the New Deal to stimulate the economy. And this included the Indian New Deal, another fact I know nothing about until now. So let's hear about that.
1: Yes. So the Indian New Deal was really trying to promote like Native self governance, right? You know, they saw the problems with poverty. And so, you know, they're like, okay no more allotment we, we we see from the Miriam port it wasn't really that kind of graded of idea and so what they're thinking then is to kind of recreate those kinds of reservations it's like mm-hmm. okay you have your lands back and you can be in charge of them and you can kind of manage it and you know deal with all the issues of day-to-day management right because the BIA was not interested in kind of they didn't have the funds the resources to kind of do all that stuff and so they're like okay you guys can right it. it'll be kind of your issue now yeah. is how difficult it actually is because you know you have to follow all these laws and respect people's rights and you know, you know. yeah just, you know, <laughs> um I think that they had to do and so um you know when they did that report you know a lot of those commissioners on the Miriam port, like they went to native communities and they like did these listening sessions being like, what are problems that you have? And so, um, you know, native people came out and they told them about it. And so, you know, when they kind of heard about like native people getting land reservation having reservations and being in charge of their tribal lands again they're like this is literally the opposite of what you just wanted to like you just try you've been we're still trying to sell this land right this is still the 30s we're still trying to sell these coal lands like you can't be like you know we're not doing this and so um, that actually leads oklahoma um you know because it also had so many native people not just like Choctaws, but so many others and so that was like terrifying to them you know like yeah the totally. way Oklahomans were scared about McGirt when it came back when it happened in like <laughs> 2020 it kind of like happened then too because they're like oh my gosh there are so many Native like they, they can't take over that's the right. whole state. you know they, they're like they're gonna take over the whole state oh no and so they, yeah. <laughs> yeah oh my god and so they opted out to like be a part of the Indian New Deal and so um it takes uh, another couple of years they kind of because they're like they're like well we still have these poverty problems and we still really want to solve them and so that's how you kind of come up with the um, Indian Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act which is basically uh. um, a different format or like it's a bit of a remix that's kind of more palatable <laughs> of less like giving Native people more power um, and so so you have that kind of it's so it's a little bit different but like originally oklahoma like didn't take part in some of the like
0: most important parts of that indian new deal wow interesting so so that makes so much sense why it ended up being oklahoma had some variations versus some of the other um the, the what was the one that was called before you said the the re, indiana indian reorganization act sorry so um, what were the benefits though, of this Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act?
1: So, uh, a lot of the problems, you know, the probates and restrictions like that used to be handled in state courts and okay. that took up a lot of time. Oh, I bet. <laughs> the prosecutors, right. And so they started, yeah. they decided to move that to a federal court, right. Like, so federal court, so that becomes kind of takes that off the plate of the state, right. Like that's a lot of stuff to kind of have to deal with. Um, they wanted to create like a fund for Native people to get loans, you know, mm-hmm. people were just like we need a loan, you know, so I can just like, yeah. buy the stuff that I need and so that kind of gives them a little bit more authority and autonomy, um, especially for
0: individuals. Okay, so there were some good things that came out of this, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, it was really helpful for people, especially, right? Like, you're trying to get out of the depression. Like, you are just trying to make it day to day. And so um, this is really a time period where people are trying to, you know, get back on their feet and not
0: have such live in poverty. Right. And, you know, having more authority over their own affairs meant that the Choctaw Advisory Council was formed. Uh, What were some of the results of that council?
1: Yeah, so Choctaw Nation, or, you know, as we kind of talked about before, you didn't have the government um, anymore in a kind of official way, right? Like they had to get rid of their legislature, they had to get rid of their judicial branch. And so um, Chief really thought it'd be helpful to have chalk from every single kind of community be able to advise the different kinds of laws and figure out what's going to go happen you know before people were complaining about like chief doesn't do anything we should just get rid of him I oh, think man. this is kind of a way to bring people in you know like have someone yes. who could go back to talk to communities being like okay like this is kind of the problem and like this is what, what they're you know trying to figure out and you know have people know a little bit more and so figure out what is the best recourse like what do people want to kind of absolutely happen? and so they have this kind of Choctaw advisory council um, which was made up of 11 Choctaw citizens from all of the different districts and they also actually included like um, an at-large so this is like people who live in Oklahoma City and who didn't live like in one of the counties in um, Choctaw Nation
0: and yes, so they- okay
1: so, they kind of selected um, their officers, and so they just like kind of planned what would be a good way to use Choctaw money, or like what are things that Choctaw needs. And so, um, you know, one of the things that they brought in was like a hospital in Talahina. Um, And so they kind of like got the ground. Um, Got things going for that and then they were trying to figure out still how to sell those coal lands um and oh, you know they were <laughs> the damn coal lands i know that was like their biggest headache they really truly like oh my oh. god i keep dealing with this um and you know just things
0: that supported choctaw history and culture so
1: you kind of people would know about it
0: yes Good. So, I mean, that's good that that was established as well. You know, obviously preservation and carrying on of our culture, super important. So it sounds like the council was doing some good things. And then we're heading into the 1940s. So you mentioned uh, Choctaw William G. Stigler, who was elected to Congress in 1944. He was in District 2. He was a great advocate for the Native people's needs and created a set of useful regulations for the five tribes. And then U.S. Congress Congressional Representative Carl Albert, as you also mentioned, was also an advocate for the Choctaw during this time. And the congressional representative was an intermediary between the BIA and the Choctaw Nation, and politicians especially targeted the southeast corner of Oklahoma in order to get those votes in Congressional District 3, where many Choctaws and Chickasaws lived. Um, So during that time, the allotment restrictions, um, Congress passed an act in 1947 that removed those restrictions for the Choctaws, as you mentioned, also removed them for Chickasaws, Cherokees, Muscogee Creeks, and Seminoles, and um, for those who had less than 50% blood quantum. And in 2018, that act was amended to remove the blood quantum requirement. Um, And then we just talked about the coal and asphalt lands. I'm just kind of recapping a little bit here. The Chickasaws and Choctaws owned 3,040 acres of asphalt lands in Pushmataha, Murray, and Carter counties, and 376,757 acres of coal deposits in now Atoka, Coal, Pittsburgh, Latimer, LaFleur, and Haskell counties. So that's a lot of land. You mentioned that the government would appraise those lands. What did they come up with? Um. So it's like ten million,
1: uh, forty-one thousand and thirty dollars. Like that's okay. Kind of, wow. Very specific. Um, yeah. Yes. Luckily, I have it here. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of like the number that they're like, oh, this is kind of the value of the land, and so yeah. that's what it, um would have been sold off for the kind of per capita payments.
0: Okay. And, and of course this probably led to more frustrations for the Choctaws because that meant they couldn't recover the per capita payment from the sale of the lands. So what did they end up doing to, to solve for this since they could only sell small portions?
1: You know, they just went with it. Like, this is what you have. That's what you got to give out. And so, you know, okay. like that kind of, um, or that, you know, like they had the, they can only sell the little bit part. um. So they're like, we want the US government to just, just it, purchase it.
0: and so. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and you mentioned that before that it was like, okay, would you sell the land to the government? And they did. They bought it in like 1949, right? Yes, yeah, I know. I, I jumped ahead. <laughs> no, you're fine. I just before. wanted to, yeah, I thought I'd recap that because um, I think it's just interesting that 1949- All those years that they just, it just sat there and the coal lands and the money that people were needing to live on, as we talked earlier, it's just, I don't know, it's baffling. Um, But anyway, finally, so during the (laughs) decade of the 1950s, a storm was a Bruin, according to your article, many Choctaws were frustrated that it took those 43 years for the Bureau of Indian Affairs to sell the Choctaw Chickasaw coal and asphalt lands. And since Choctaws were supposed to receive per capita payments from the sale, the delay in the sale prevented many from receiving much needed money. Many who were unaware of the complicated nature of this process came to believe that Choctaw chiefs were not doing their job, even though they worked diligently with other Choctaw leaders, BIA officials, members of Congress, and local state leaders to move that process along. Um, So really, you know, we've kind of hinted at this throughout because of this unrest What did some of the Choctaw community members do? They were adamant that, you know, they had to get
1: rid of this Choctaw government, right? They didn't feel like they were doing enough. And so they would write letters to Carl Alberts and other, the presidents, and they would send it to the BIA being like, he's not doing anything. So we got to get rid of him. We don't need a government kind of um, anymore. And
0: so, (laughs) Um, I'm just trying to think of what it would have been like if they had succeeded in that. I understand their frustrations, but yes, wow, that yeah. could have been. So
1: they're really frustrated. And so they take this up with um people in Congress and, you know, they start kind of like a movement being like, if we need to like kind of terminate the Choctaw government. And so um, this is kind of something that the BIA even like picks up on, right? Because like now yeah, to, like, like, aha. There, there's this termination thing going on in the air and mm-hmm. other tribes. And they're like, oh, so the Choctaws want, they don't want a government anymore. They want to be terminated. You know, we can do that. Oh, God. Oh, God. We <laughs> get rid right. of the government for you. And so. Bounce um, on it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like people get kind of funneled. They didn't realize what they were playing. It. They got, you know, played into. It's yes. like they use those kind of calls to be like, okay, then like well we can do a termination kind of government. And so we can terminate the Choctaw government. And so. Wow. Um, and this is what people asked for. Like, that. that's kind of the thing, is, like, people asked for this, and so Carl Alberts, the different peoples in Congress, they're like, okay, if this is what you want, then go okay. we'll send it off to Congress as a thing. Oh, man. The CIA has kind of looked at it, um, and so, um, I, and I think some people didn't quite get the full scope of what they were saying or what termination actually means in, a, in its legal sense. And right. so um they pass um a law to you know like being like okay so um Choctaw's want to be terminated so they have to do xyz um abcd D. like there was a pretty long list of things really yeah do, um oh, before um they were kind of terminated so you know officially kind of and it was like the only one of the five tribes to kind of go this kind of direction none of them are like hey, let's get terminated <laughs> you know, I but know. Just- <laughs> but it's like very much like a circumstance of like, you know, Chalkhouse happened to have coal and then they had this huge kind of issue for years. And so like the, the particular circumstances of the land and like their kind of history of it, how they used to own mine you know, like coal mines way back when, like that is what's like kind of bubbling up
0: as an issue now. And so. Yeah. And I know that we kind of talk about it throughout. And I think, it's important that we did because of that whole. This is this was what was bubbling up, and I think it's a lesson for all of us to gather all our facts and data before we make decisions. You know, especially one that could completely um, destroy a, a sovereignty. You know, so lesson learned.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, eventually um, they kind of pass legislation for like termination. And so they're like, this is kind of how things would happen. And so that kind of gets put on the table. And then that starts to be kind of something that the Choctaw government, along with like the BIA is trying to work on and like, you know, filling out all
0: those criteria for termination. I'm just curious how many of us Choctaws actually knew this was happening. And again, this is in the 1950s, the 1950s. This wasn't something that was going on in the 1800s. I mean, it started bubbling up, you know, years ago in the 1900s, early 1900s, but my God. So part of this termination would be relocation, correct?
1: Yeah. And so it doesn't quite kind of, I think we have these like, um, wider American Indian history like we hear about termination I mean um relocation as this really kind of big program and like there's definitely Choctaws who kind of participated in it right like you had Choctaws going to Chicago to California right Dallas um but if you kind of like read a lot of people stay where they are you know they, they stay kind of in the area and so um Uh, maybe maybe it's because I was like reading stuff about people being in the same place you know like I was reading congressional correspondence so that's kind of skews the bias I think of whatever and so I wasn't reading like other people being relocated but it didn't seem like a big as big of a phenomenon as like for other kinds of tribes or that uh, was my like, okay. of it. just like from reading what was kind of there um but I'm sure there's yeah. like, a lot more out there that I'm missing that just wasn't in the kind of archival material but a lot of people still kind of stayed or they like had connections like mm-hmm. there was like letters from people from California being like oh like my family has this land like they still maintained a kind of connection to it gotcha so i think in my, like it always felt like people were still kind of connected to oklahoma and to Choctaw territory in that kind of way so um you have all these people still like you know trying to stay connected to yeah
0: there were were the relocations were they voluntary or did they force them to go to these other states uh, it kind of struck me as a little bit more voluntary,
1: like it's like okay, and it, it kind of seemed like you know there's not enough opportunity in Oklahoma, right? Like it's very mm-hmm. difficult to get a job, and if if you live here, you kind of know like there's not that much going on. Like there's a lot you can work at. the it was Dirks Sonic. Sonic's <laughs> headquartered in Oklahoma. I would like to point this out. No. Go ahead. Yeah, so you have like Dirk's, which is now Warehouser, which eventually got bought out. And so like you could work at the chicken plant, like there's not, they're all low wage labor jobs. They're not really anything that's going to like lead to a lot more kind of advancement. And so I think that's, it's more of a kind of social push being like, there's not that many opportunities here.
0: So you could go elsewhere. Right. I remember, um, I believe it was Jake Tiger Seminole who was on that was a guest on the show at one point and he was saying you know that his family had that opportunity i can't remember if it was michigan i should probably go go back and check my notes but um and that was the first time i'd heard about the relocation and there's just parts of our history that it's not they've just it's just kind of fallen by the wayside we just don't talk about it very much because it's just so many other things to talk about so pretty interesting um this is this is sometimes why we have groups of Choctaws living in other areas of the country. Um, and then there was, um, chief Harry J W Belvin bless his heart. Tell us what he tried to bring to the table. Uh, let's see. So, um, Belvin,
1: <laughs> it's, it's funny. <laughs> Belvin was not like, he was like an interesting character. You, cause you can kind of, i read a lot of his correspondence and he was a fiery dude like okay he had a temper Ooh. and if you made him angry he would let you know
0: oh my goodness
1: you know people would be he's, like i mean he does sound like an interesting character though he was, and it's just like he would just like go off on people in these letters because they'd be like oh you're not doing enough for, uh, for chief and he's like what would you know you don't know anything <laughs> <laughs> i'm just like oh this Aggressive. like definitely kind of a character but
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> um, so, so funny
1: yeah yeah and so I i always loved reading um his like hate mail because he responded with just as much vigor <laughs> oh um, my god yeah and so he he really was like kind of an advocate for trying to get you know Get Choctaws like on the right foot. You know, he's wanted them to be kind of a little bit more assimilated to society. And like I think he was a little bit like less interested in yeah, you know, but you know, I have all these stories of people who like, you know, he was their family member and like he spoke Choctaw and like they remember seeing him at church, like when they were little kids and and stuff like that. And so I don't know, he's such a kind of like interesting figure because he was like not You know, he existed in a lot of people's lives that I know now. They're like, "Oh, really? Okay." Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you know, he's not just like this person who's not, he's like disconnected because he definitely like had families. Yeah, people in the office that I know, you know, like a lot of people's like relative, but you know, um, so it's. Now we're like at this kind of point where it's like, oh, I know people who knew him,
0: like, right, when they were
1: younger. When so.
0: those decades where, yeah, mm-hmm. there's people still living who knew
1: him. Um, so
0: go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so he was just
1: definitely kind of really a character. And so he, but he still like fought for Choctaws. So he's like, you know, we should have all these different kinds of things. Um, he went to court, you know, to, took the U.S. government to court for fulfilling, for failing to fulfill their legal obligations to Choctaw Nation, and the court rejected it. Um, he, he tried. Wanted- yeah I think he wanted to like scale up what that advisory council into a kind of tribal council but then that was kind of rejected and he just he was really annoyed with how much the BIA was like interfering with people's daily lives right and so he's like get them out like we don't and that was part of the thing it's like um it was also you know People complained that the chief wasn't doing as much work as he should have, but people were just also really tired of having to like go to the BIA to like, can I buy a fridge? Right, right. Exactly. I buy one and, you know, (laughs) having to go through those kinds of loopholes. And so people were just like frustrated about that on their, in their day-to-day lives. And so I think that's kind of a part of why he was like, well, maybe termination isn't such a, a bad thing to kind of happen.
0: Mm. Hmm. Interesting. And it sounds like that he kind of did some things in the government that the Choctaw people may not have known about. Like in 1959, the U S Congress passed an act called the Choctaw termination to serve Choctaw's nation to nation relationship with the U S government. Oh, sorry. To sever that relationship with the government. So, but did the Choctaw community members know that the Choctaw Termination Act had passed? I mean, knowing that also that Chief Belvin had kind of promoted it? Yeah, and so I think
1: this is kind of when people are starting... And they kind of start to see, like, what's going on, uh, like, in other Native communities. This is kind of the early years of the Red Power movement. And so you have a lot. And, you know, it's also like um, after you have relocation, you have a lot of people meeting other Native people. And they're like, hey, Mm -hmm. this is what's happening in my community. And then they learn about, oh, we have this kind of problem. And so you have this a lot more communication um, between Native people from different kinds of tribes with different sets of kinds of experience. And so people are learning a lot, kind of just from that. And so then that then they're like, Oh, okay, I'm sure a lot of them realized how different, you know, Choctaw situation was um, than other tribes. And I think that gave a lot of people perspective that they might not have had um, before. That's kind of my guess, but people are getting a lot more involved. They're like, oh, you know, maybe we should
0: do more government stuff. You know, maybe we should be a little bit more involved. Absolutely, it's it's um, exciting what's about to happen in that next decade. Um, In congressional testimony years later, Belvin's that's again, Chief Belvin stated that the legislation that was read to and approved by Choctaw community members was different from the one passed into law by Congress. So I just I I feel bad for um, Chief Belvin. I feel like he had a really good um, he, he really wanted to help, but it seems like there were some miscommunications going on there and and. And maybe things that the Choctaw people didn't know, which again leads us into the decade of the 1960s and 70s. Love that decade. It's kind of fun. Um, And it was pivotal. It was pivotal in our Choctaw government's history. And it's exciting to me to hear what happened and how our people came together and realized the significance of our sovereignty. So tell us what was going on in the 1960s in Choctaw Nation. Yeah. So now you have a lot, you know. Now
1: you've had a few years in which people are kind of interacting, doing different kinds of stuff, and so um, they, they hear about the kind of this deadline for termination, which was like, oh, on this day, government to be kind of terminated, and I think um, you can start to, when you look at the archival stuff and the things that people would say, it's I don't think people have a full kind of understanding, right? Because there was a lot of caveats, right? Like you'll be terminated if you do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, you have to find every single heir who could have possibly like get land or. Oh my gosh. And like, that is like, the BI is like, there's no way we can do that. We cannot do that right like, right like, you no. know, ca- like it costs so much money trying to figure that out you know like people don't respond to letters and so it's really kind of difficult so um legally they were never in any kind of actual real danger of termination but right. people you know they were like fanning the fires so they're like it's gonna happen next week we gotta do something <laughs> and so that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> and so like um me- <laughs> But you know, maybe it's a it's good that they thought it was that because like it really got people moving. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of chakras. So Valerie Lambert, um, she writes a lot about this. She's a Choctaw anthropologist. um, She writes about this movement in particular, um, about how there was a lot of youth in particularly Oklahoma City. Um, They kind of heard what was going on with termination and they're like, we got to stop this. And so they kind of like tapped into all the different You know, people live in Oklahoma City, but they still have family in Choctaw Territories. So they would, like, go to the churches and they would pass out flyers. They started a mailing list being like, this is what's happening in Choctaw. We have to, like, kind of fight it and go, um, um, You know, tell everyone what's going on because we have to stop termination, right? And then people would go to churches and like give like a speech, being like, "Hey, this is what's going on. Join our mailing list." And so that was their kind of like it's a lot of grassroots organizing to kind of get people mobilized and fight against termination. And so amazing. Once they start doing that, you know, people are starting getting rowdy. They're like, "Hey, we don't (laughs) want this thing that was kind of happening," but like don't forget a lot of people were asking for it, you know, just like a few years before, but now right. people have changed their tune and it's like, you know, puts someone, I think in a really awkward position. Cause like, I think especially Carl Albert, he was like, I literally just did what you asked me to do. And now you're like all getting on my case.
0: Right. And so... Good
1: point. <laughs> I didn't even think about that poor Mr. Albert. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, cause you know, I spent so much time reading how much, you know, Carl, Carl Albert really did for chopped out people. And then all these people were like, oh, he's like the worst guy ever. And I was uh. like, you don't <laughs> even know. Like, you don't even know what this man has done. And he's like Speaker of the House by now. So he's like like third in line for president at this point and it like has a lot on his plate. Um, wow,
0: damn. Damn. Um,
1: maybe not by this point, but later eventually he does become Speaker of the House. But, you know, yeah. he's he's very competent at his job and it's also um Oklahoma was used to be very it was like only up until 2008 Oklahoma always consistently democratic and Carl Albert was like the best he's the best politician of Oklahoma I think ever and he's like the most famous Oklahoma politician he's a Democrat
0: <laughs> you know and yeah or the Choctaws and he really tried to help them out um but he, um, yeah, yeah, he he did. He listened to what the people wanted, and then he just tried to go after that. Yeah, which is yeah what our politicians are supposed to do, right? Listen to the people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: I if there's a Carl Albert fan, it's me. I will always. Oh, that's cool. Carl Albert fan, which is like kind of obscure.
0: That's. <laughs> um, <laughs> you probably got, got like some bumper stickers and stuff. I right? know. Like, <laughs> it's an obscure fandom of mine it's like I'm a Carl Albert fan <laughs> you're like I'm the president and only member <laughs> it kind of feels like that even though like his name is everywhere no but... no I'm sure there are there are others as well I just I just love your nerdiness about it that's cute. Okay. it's <laughs> probably like I I think I see like something in your background that says Carl Albert on it just kidding um oh, okay. <laughs> So again, in 1959, Congress passed that Choctaw Termination Act, but apparently the BIA hadn't completed all the requirements by 1962, because Megan, as you mentioned, there were so many requirements. And so they, they didn't complete it all in order for the termination to be complete. So the deadline was extended three times. So the Choctaw helped to stop the termination from coming to fruition, right? It sounds like their grassroots efforts really did help.
1: Yeah, and so their their organizing got them to kind of do a repeal of that termination legislation. Awesome. And so that definitely kind of helped, even though it wasn't gonna happen, they still like got it repealed, which was really kind of important as well. Yeah. And so I think this all of this kind of organizing really built up a kind of new political engagement that wasn't really kind of their in the same way before, right? Like people were fired up. People wanted to be involved in Choctaw politics in a way that people hadn't been doing in the in the same kind of way and it was a lot of young people um you talk Charles Brown was a big kind of person in this movement this is when David Gardner who starts to kind of get his feet wet with this kind of situation um my uncle um Colin Billy he lived in Oklahoma City and he was like a major kind of person who put out um who helped with um putting out newsletters so this is like um when they were talking about termination and kind of all that they had these like little newsletters that they would pass around but it would have things like ball games like this is when all (laughs) this we're having all these different ball games and so very much a community kind of thing and so I love that
0: I love your tie to that
1: Yeah. It's really nice. And so I didn't kind of realize it until I started like talking to my aunt. She's like, Oh yeah. I remember how we used to go to like these singings and we used to like prepare these newsletters. And then I would like pull out a newsletter and I'd be like, Hey, this is Janice and aunt Rose. That's amazing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so I I love that. Oh my gosh. Do they have any pictures from that time frame? It would be so cool to see some of them. Um, They definitely do. Um,
1: Well, actually, my aunt had house had a fire. She like lost a lot of the fires. They kill everything. We talked about that last time. (laughs) Um, But I, you know, I always like have like pictures of the pictures of them. I'd be like, "Hey, I found in the archive today. Look at little Janice. so cute." Uh, Ah, that's so my gosh! No,
0: (laughs) Billy, there you are. (laughs) Yeah, it's really yeah. neat, though. How cool that you had those. I mean, those are people that helped save our sovereignty. You know, I hope I'm saying that correctly, the word sovereignty. Um, But it, it's just, it, it's a crazy thought that that was going on. I feel like we should have some kind of like, celebration day every year, like, you <laughs> know, Choctaw beating the termination act. <laughs> that would be a nice that, that would be a good yeah. holiday. Because yeah. it is a big deal. It was a pivotal moment in our history. And, and even though if it probably wasn't going to happen because of all of those restrictions, still, even then, I mean, President Nixon signed the day before the termination was supposed to take effect. And and as you mentioned, the Choctaws probably weren't in any actual danger of losing the government because of the criteria not being fulfilled and all that. But but still, I mean, it's it's such an incredible story and. You know, it was critical to our our nationhood today. So, and your article points out that this was an important movement in our history because it taught our people that we have to remain vigilant and stay involved in tribal government. And so as mentioned earlier, the laws made it seem that the U.S. president selected the chief, right? Back when we were talking about that. But he would always delegate to the secretary of the interior and Choctaw's actually selected their chief. Now federal policy in the 1970s and 80s It would it would turn tribal nations towards self-determination. And in 1971, a law was passed that um, allowed the five tribes elections without oversight of the U.S. president. Yay. So the first public election since statehood took place on July 30th, 1971. And old Chief Harry J.W. Belvin ran for chief and won, which surprises me. But it seemed he, he nearly caused big issues for the Choctaw with the termination situation. But it sounds like he did have a heart for the Choctaw people. Um, and so, yeah, so they elected him. And something that was born out of the anti-termination movement was a newsletter called Hello Choctaw. Tell us about that.
1: Yes. So this is that kind of little newsletter that I had mentioned earlier. So Hello Choctaw was very much something that pushed people to learn about issues, to know what kind of was going on in the community. Um, you know, when there was a singing, you knew where it was, and kind of just had a calendar of stuff. And you're like, oh, we're having this kind of this sale or whatnot. And so it was really something that connected people. I and, love that. Um. <laughs> it it's um uh it's very scholarly kind of thing but people always talk about newspapers are like this big force of nationalism because everyone's reading the same thing mm-hmm. and so people really kind of build a community and like our can like imagine each other as being in, in community with other people. And so yes. it's a really important part of nation building. And so Hello Choctaw, I feel like really proves that because you know it wasn't there kind of before. And like it communicated every like the anti-termination movement. And then it became kind of a thing where it's like, oh, what are the things going on in Choctaw Nation? Oh, we're having an election. And mm-hmm. then people were talking about all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, we're going to have like a debate where people are going to like talk about these kinds of issues and stuff. And so, yeah. Choctaw, you know, eventually becomes is like basically what becomes the Biscane right? It kind of gets
0: transformed
1: and it gets a, a new kind of name, but it, you know, serves that same kind of function.
0: Oh, totally. And I think we take for granted that news is so readily available, both throughout the U.S. for general news, and then also, of course, with our Biskunik, as you mentioned, the Choctaw paper that we all know and love. But knowledge is power, and the Choctaw nation could have significantly changed with the termination policy due to not having that communication to let Choctaws know what was going on. It was a great lesson that the news is crucial to maintaining that tribal government and just being in the know in general about our goings on. Um, so I, I love that. Hello Choctaw. Thank you for, to all those people who, who did all that guerrilla warfare to get that going and, and to, to make sure that termination policy did not go through. So then in 1975, another election meant a man named David Gardner defeated Jimmy Belvin. What were some of the things that chief Gardner brought to our Choctaw people?
1: Oh, so this was something I should have um, have edited, but Jimmy Belvin didn't actually run in that kind of year, but David oh, okay. Gardner
0: was the one who um, won that election. Okay. So basically in 1975, Gardner became chief. <laughs> yeah so he, he's elected kind of chief and so he's he's really
1: young um when he gets kind of elected um in the years kind of before he like had filed a lawsuit because he like ran when he was 30 and they're like oh you can't run for chief because you're too young like you're not at the appropriate age and so like uh-huh. Sullivan, I mean not Belvin um Gardner took them to court and so but they kind of like, it doesn't pan out for him. And so they just wait till he's after um, 35 to like run for chief and kind of go through all that. And so eventually he kind of, he wins. Ah, um, okay. That makes sense. Yes. And so um, Gardner really has a, a vision for Choctaw Nation, right? He really wants Um, He's, he wants people to invest in culture, he wants everyone to be like kind of connected again. And so he really wanted to like bring Choctaw people in together. Um, And he pushed for a new constitution, he was really trying to get um, employment opportunities for people. Um, He wanted, um, he was responsible for kind of getting the press Presbyterian College here in Durant to become the Choctaw Nation headquarters you know he's like <laughs> did a lease from them and so for many many years that haunted school <laughs> became um, the <laughs> headquarters for Choctaw Nation and and so and he did things like um, kind of go for a dictionary, like we should have a Choctaw dictionary because, you know, that was a, in those newsletters. They would like have like lists of Choctaw words and, you know, like just teaching people right. things kind of like that. And so that was always important to him. And so he kind of continued that um, when he was
0: chief. That's awesome. He did a lot of good stuff. Thank you, Chief Gardner. Um, and unfortunately, though, he didn't complete his four-year term. He passed away at just 38 years old in January 13th, 1978, from cancer. Very sad. Uh, so now we're coming up on the 1980s. And next up, Chief Hollis Roberts, who had experience in the House of Representatives and Tribal Affairs, was tasked with the creation of a new constitution. So what's the story with this new constitution?
1: So, you know, they're like, we have a government. We need a new constitution, right? Apparently, like, the last time they had one was, like, back in 1890. Like Okay, yeah. <laughs> it was a really old one. And so, uh, <laughs> technically, and so they had passed one in 1979. And so, um, some people were not very happy with it. They are like, this isn't constitutional. Actually, like, you didn't go by um, the old constitution's, like, procedures for starting uh-huh. a new right okay. people weren't kind of happy with it so they took it to kind of court essentially and so um you know creek nation nearby also had a similar like they were going through sim- something very similar and so um um they had taken that to the supreme court and so the supreme court kind of ruled was like Well, technically, um, this pre-statehood constitution, like it never got rid of. So that's the legal one. So if you want a new constitution, you have to go by the older one. And so that's what Choctaw's kind of realized that they have to do as well. So that 1979 constitution is not technically legal because they have to go by the procedures of the 1890 constitution. Wow, okay. Well, like you can't just copy that oh it says 1860 yes so 1860 constitution so okay <laughs> in effect like that was a totally different kind of time period right like Choctaw Nation was totally different it had a court system it had all these kinds of things that Choctaw Nation like kind of now didn't really have but they were wanted to kind of bring back um wow. and so um they had to like hammer out a completely new constitution, which and which had some new stuff in it. So they um, introduced the position of assistant chief and okay. that's an appointed position. Um, they created criteria for tribal citizenship that was based on lineal descent. Um, so if you had someone on the Dawes rules and you were a lineal descendant of them, you can be considered a Choctaw citizen. Um, it established the 12 council members and then um, it just, you know, set up a timetable for when everyone gets elected because they didn't want everyone being up for election every year. So it kind of toggled them
0: back and forth. Gotcha. And it, it's kind of interesting the, you know, when, when folks are trying to apply to become a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, the, this is the basis for why they have to actually find the lineal descent from blood Choctaws listed on the final Dawes rolls. And so it is heartbreaking for some people who are like, I'm clearly Choctaw. I descend from all these people. I know their names. I know their histories. And yet they can't um, actually become Choctaw members because their ancestors did not get on the Dawes rolls. And so, um, but that doesn't mean they are any less Choctaw. I want, we're all one big family, no matter what, right? Even if some Choctaws cannot technically have their CDIB card, their certificate degree of Indian blood card. I just, I always want to give a shout out to all Choctaws, regardless of if they have their CDIBs or not, because we are all family. So in 1983, the Choctaw voters approved the new constitution. And then what happened next?
1: So, you know, once you have a constitution, like you're really kind of in business and you can kind of do want. you want. And so one of the big things is like, you know, your government, you need money to operate. And so right. I think the chief at the time was really kind of thinking of ways to come up with revenue for a tribe, right? Because state governments as we kind of talked about before they get their revenue through taxes but uh-huh. tribes can't tax people they, there's no income tax there's no land tax they don't have any of those kinds of things and so that's actually one of the big challenges and this is why everyone always talks about economic development and you know finding and right. this is kind of what, how gaming becomes so powerful right because they need money and they need a way to kind of do that um But before kind of that happens, um, Choctaw Nation takes over like Indian health services. So basically IHS used to run that hospital in Tallahassee and so now they're kind of managing their own hospital kind of services. Awesome. And so that becomes, um, a way for them to figure out how to, you know, take care of tribal members, but also, you know, do things on their own. And so, um. They were, you know, trying to fulfill the needs of Choctaw people. So the people need houses. So they're like, okay, housing authority. We're going to be in charge of building houses on um, the reservation. And so we need, um, you know, we had all of these rights, and for a lot of time. Um, other people got away with stealing land so we're gonna take all these people to court and we're gonna get really kind of like in that way and so you know you have um like that arkansas riverbed um um, that gets settled in 2002 and that leads to like 40 million dollars settlement that gets kind of divided by between the Choctaws, Cherokees, and Chickasaw. Wow. So that's money that they can use for like, whatever kinds of projects. And like, you know, they're really trying to show like, we have sovereignty, this is our land, right? Like, I'm not gonna let you guys like mess with it. There was also like, the mishandling of um, those timberlands, because you remember, they had been kept out of allotment. Right. Uh, they then we like, you know those lands they got sold off when they shouldn't have or like we didn't get paid when we should have and so they had that kind of documented and they took that to court and so um that doesn't get resolved until like 2015 um so jumping a little bit ahead but it's also becomes i think one of the largest settlements um that the us government does to a native tribe because it's like you mismanage funds you're gonna kind of pay for it and you know there's some restitution right doesn't it feel like
0: okay things are getting
1: better a little bit but you know like if they were fighting in court for so long mm. that it's just a little frustrating that you have to spend 20 years in court to get something you know the money for that and then so right, but, you know, right. like it was really trying to assert like that sovereignty like being in court and like fighting for those rights you also have like um, the water settlement, which happens also later on. But those are, you know, these are like, these are our lands, we want to take care of it. And so they right. have kind of the beginnings of that in that in the um, those 80s and early 90s. Wow. Um, and then of course, lastly, you have the opening of the bingo palace, the bingo
0: palace. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It sounds like there's some fun stories from that time in the bingo palace. What do you have? Do you have any, Any
1: there's so many
0: great stories, right?
1: (laughs) A lot of the people who work for Choctaw nation got their start in the casino. So I had this great opportunity to kind of interview people who were like worked at the casino at his, you know, and they talked about how fun it was they had like a money machine where um they would like have the cash go on all around you and you're supposed to catch it and so (laughs) everyone like James Dry talks about he's the council member for district nine and he talks about how he got his start flipping burgers at the bingo palace like that was his first job (laughs) that's so cool I love that and so like he just kind of made his way um through you know like once it became a casino like moved up and like a lot of the people who were like running those places back then are like the people running the casino now and wow
0: that's amazing like ground floor stuff you know yeah yeah that's so fun I love (laughs) that and and the fact that so many people are still working for Choctaw Nation that were bingo employees that just shows that it really is a big family no no corporation and no organization is perfect but I have to admit, I'm very biased about our Choctaw nation and, and the employment that goes on and, you know, legacy folks that have been here even since the bingo palace. (laughs) So cool. Yeah. It's
1: always, it's always nice to like, kind of hear people who've like worked for the tribe for like 20 years. They'll be like, Oh, I started at bingo. Then I did this. And like, they like (laughs) bounce around the most random different departments and like, uh, you know at the cultural center we have people who are like oh yeah I I grew up like I worked at the bingo palace and then I had my kid and then I went back and now I work for cultural services and doing all this kind of stuff like um one of the maintenance guys was like oh yeah I used to work there and like we all used to be a crew um Joe in our office said he used to do security (laughs) at um the casino (laughs) like yeah those were some days (laughs) It's, oh i bet yeah it's really funny and there's people are they they look back on it very fondly you know they that. they like talk about how they made connections with the like patrons being like oh yeah. they would always like you know i think james dry had mentioned that he was like the pallbearer for like people who used to come to the bingo palace oh wow. like,
0: they had built such close kinds of relationships right and not to mention bingo's fun I, I, yes. I have yeah. one of those things with the balls in it at my house like I'm always looking for somebody to play with me and we're finding somebody to play but it's so much fun give us some bingo that's yes. good, good clean fun right there
1: yeah <laughs> yeah and so bingo is really kind of beloved but I guess like it's not the money maker that a casino is um surprisingly so like, y'all yeah I, someone had mentioned, I think, that um, the casinos can, in one night, make what the Bingo Palace made in a weekend or, like, a week. Oh, my gosh, really? <laughs> so, like, it was, like, it was no contest. Even though, like, they made money from bingo, like, casino gaming is, like, a much, you know, much more lucrative
0: endeavor. Kind of a bigger deal, right? Yeah. And, and it so, really
1: was, like, go ahead. Oh, yeah. And so that's eventually kind of how it gets phased out, but, like, you
0: people loved bingo. That's so fun. You know, um, maybe when we retire someday, we can just like have our own bingo palace. <laughs> we can just play bingo all day. <laughs> we'll I get all yeah. the older folks with us and we'll, yeah. yeah, actually I could do it now. I'm probably of the age now where I could just sit and play. Yeah. Bingo I was like, it. I will spend a weekend playing bingo and not doing bingo. Yes. Right. <laughs> Especially if you can be in that money thing where the money's flowing around. Yeah. That sounds great. I want some of that. I want somebody else to have the money floating around where I (laughs) can. But well, you know, the 1990s decade, it saw such success with that bingo palace, as you mentioned, and it was really kind of a jumpstart to some of the other business ventures that Choctaw Nation operated, like the Choctaw Inn and Three Arrows Restaurant and travel plazas. And, And then in 1999, its own construction company to build these businesses. That's crazy. And then what was the next venture after that?
1: yeah so that was, <laughs> um the casino I'm always like jumping ahead of myself oh but... no you're
0: fine
1: <laughs> but yeah so once you have gaming is taking off also like in other parts of native um of Indian country and so it's becoming increasingly popular and then once you have that 1988 Indian Gaming Regulatory Act yeah um, which kind of dictates you know you have to do a state compact obviously to be like what types of machines, like the different kinds of levels of um, gaming? So, like, blackjack is one class, and then a slot machine is different, and they're they're oh, like okay. So there's different. Those are like important distinctions, and so that's why some places have it and some places don't. Like if you go to different kinds of states, because it's kind of based
0: on that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, and what I absolutely love is that. You talk about how Choctaw Nation in 2004 worked on state legislation that would help Oklahoma uh, tribal nations upgrade their gaming machines to the Vegas style slot machine and other class three. Uh, games. So so this led then the Choctaw Nation to enter the gaming compacts that shared some of the earnings with the state of Oklahoma. So that kind of hand-in-hand thing at the time anyway. And so over the next year, Choctaw Nation massively expanded its gaming operations and quickly became its most lucrative business. <laughs> That's exciting. Um, and then they opened their first casino in 2006 in Durant, Oklahoma. It was so successful that plans for expansion came not long after the opening that's crazy, um, and then the Grand Tower in 2010 in, and then the uh, 2016 was a spa tower, and then in 2022 this year the Sky Tower was added. Is that complete now? Oh yeah, it's done. Okay. okay, well, and I was so bummed because my sister and I stayed at, I believe it was the Grand Tower together, and. Uh, We really were, we were looking at the construction going on at the Sky Tower at the time and going, oh, I really want to stay in the new one too. So really cool and fun experience to go to the casinos, the Choctaw casinos. Um, I highly recommend it. So everybody you know, take into consideration too, that you're not just out there having fun, although it is so much fun. You're also supporting the tribe, which means that you're supporting our healthcare, our um, our elders, our housing, all of those things. It's, you know, super beneficial to the tribe. And all of this expansion really provided more jobs and opportunities for tribal members too, right?
1: Yeah. So it's so interesting to have like kind of done the whole history of this you know, of this kind of era of Choctaw Nation, right? Because you,
0: right.
1: what people learned in bingo, then they then kind of applied to the casinos, right? A hmm. lot of people got their kind of start there and then are able to kind of grow as Choctaw Nation grows. Like they learned the skills kind of along the way. Mm-hmm. And so it it was really nice, you know, like meet all the people who like are in these like tiny little pockets all over Choctaw Nation who were a part of this kind of, Journey, and so it's really. I love that. I love it so much. I've gotten to meet with people and visit, and yeah, I loved that kind of part of
0: the. Oh (laughs) yeah. Oh, for sure. I bet that was a lot of fun, and um, you know, those again, those are things you won't find in the history books. Really, I mean, not not all those fun human details, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's very like you know people just like they're very fond memories for people, and so it's right. And that's, I guess, whenever they see old pictures of um, this, they can be like, "Wow, we really kind of grew with the nation." And it's really crazy to see where Choctaw Nation is today and like what it kind of does. You know, um, I had to get directions from Dallas this morning, and then <laughs> I typed in Choctaw, and then it was like Choctaw Amphitheater, and then like, um, wow, I think that for the the baseball I assume or something like they bought they were oh. able to buy something down there and it, down in Dallas or that Dallas area and I was right like, oh, that was crazy that's so cool <laughs> everywhere we're everywhere <laughs> yeah I was watching I was in Seattle a couple of weeks ago and I think we were watching the Dallas Mavericks game and then there was like this little Choctaw ad and I was like uh-huh. Well, wow, look at the
0: Hello. little chapter casino. I can see about it in Seattle. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, and and I call on a lot of clients for my day job that come up from Dallas and Fort Worth area to go to the casino and they absolutely love it. So it's nice that Oklahoma and Texas can have that kind of relationship going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, now that we've talked about something fun, I thought we'd talk about something not fun, um, taxation. <laughs> taxation. So- <laughs> We just must know about this taxation thing. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where where are we on that topic at this point in this decade?
1: So now, um, you know, of course, you had taxation as a kind of problem about land in particular um, throughout the 1900s, um, and and then it kind of kind of gets kind of resolved with the you know the land restrictions, and they kind of like okay, they're like there's a lot less people with restricted land, of course, they would prefer there be no one with restricted land, because it's more land for them to kind of tax. But then, you know, states also tax different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of those became motor fuels and tobacco. And so that also became um, something that the tribe once it kind of after they got kind of started and chief roberts was able to kind of negotiate kind of compacts being like okay like we because we sell tobacco products that don't get taxed we'll give you some of the kind of money for that so you like you know have that kind of compact again just very similar right. to giving compact and so they did also did that for motor fuels and so that kind of has to get negotiated also in the
0: 90s in early 2000s ah uh so much fun Um.
1: yeah Yeah. it's like you know once Choctaw Nation is starting to like get back on its feet and like just like it kind of was before Mm -hmm. it's really able to kind of challenge what the state kind of took advantage of for a really long time and so um and of course you know like we see that a lot with McGirt now right like having that kind of um (laughs) that In our kind of like back pocket, it's given that empowered us to do a lot more and to take over, to do
0: a lot more. Mm -hmm. And yet it's being challenged. And uh, so, I mean, for our listeners, go Google. Uh, McGirt versus Oklahoma. That's M C G I R T versus Oklahoma. To learn more about what's going on with that, it's it's interesting. You can find something new every couple of months about what's going on with that. But it is an exciting time for our tribe. All at the same time, because um, it it means more about our sovereignty and about our our lands becoming reservation lands versus just uh, trust lands. I hopefully hopefully I'm saying that correctly. But definitely go check it out. So in June of 1997, Assistant Chief Gregory Pyle was sworn in as chief. And in 2007, Chief Pyle appointed Gary Batten as Assistant Chief. And after serving as chief for 17 years, Pyle retired at the age of 65, leaving Assistant Chief Gary Batten to finish out his term. Gary Batten was then elected as chief in 2015, and he was reelected in 2019. And under Chief Batten, we've seen a resolution of lawsuits Choctaw Nation had filed protecting Choctaw sovereignty. Tell us more about that. One of those lawsuits I had kind of touched about a little bit before was about those
1: timberlands. Mm And So um, you went, as I had mentioned earlier, allotment kept a lot of those timberlands out. But um, someone was looking at the old records and it was revealed that like 1.3 million acres were sold to local timber companies um, without compensating Choctaw Nation for it. And then those records were kind of kept and so they had it. And so um, you know Choctaw Nation was able to kind of take those records and be like hey you owe us all of this money for selling all these lands without compensating compensating us right. and so there was a lot of kind of litigation for like nine to ten years um, between the Choctaw Chickasaws and the U.S. government to wow. get a settlement of a hundred and million. And so that happened in 2015.
0: So that's the big one you were talking about.
1: Yeah. And so that's one of the largest settlements that the US government has had
0: to kind of give to a tribe or to try. Wow. That's really exciting about that settlement. And it just shows some of the shadiness that had continued decade after decade, honestly. But so I'm kind of sad that this is the last of your series through the decades of our Choctaw history. And I'm going to say a quick quote from the article. Since arriving in our new homelands in the 1830s on the Trail of Tears, Choctaw people maintained resiliency and learned much from the past to bring us to where we are today. Learning from centuries and decades of interaction with European and American traders and settlers, our ancestors learned and developed what they thought were the best strategies for counteracting their infringement on Choctaw lands. They secured powerful treaties that still protect many of our rights and lands, even if those treaties were not perfect and were also undermined by the U.S. government. When faced with major challenges like the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War and debates regarding allotment, Choctaw leaders chose what they thought gave the nation the most autonomy at the time. And while those decisions might not have played out as the Choctaw leaders had hoped, they have had a lasting impact. Despite the great difficulties that Choctaw people faced, we have preserved through it all and remain today. Well said, Megan. Wow. Thank you for sharing your work with us, a culmination of hundreds of hours of your research. Thank you. I was
1: It was an honor to get to write like to write so many articles and to have this research out to Choctaw people, um, I could write a book, but I know that I will not have as much readership as the Biskenek, you know, getting their copies every month. And I think that that's a real gift. And I'm really honored to have Choctaws read my writing, and I hope it's helpful for you and that you can learn something from it. Um, so I'm I'm really <laughs> honored to have been able to do it.
0: Um, Whether you're Choctaw or not, or native or not, our Biskinik paper is a wonderful source of information. So listeners, you're invited to follow along with our news online. You can Google Biskinik, B-I-S-K-I-N-I-K, or check out my Native Choctaw Facebook page where I'll share share the link. So yakoki, y'all. Thank you again, Megan. Yakoki. Thanks for listening to Native Choctaw. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at NativeChalkTalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.